HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week, we're looking at the way labels shape our perspectives on food. I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but is it acceptable to judge a wine by its label? There are some labels that I'd say are so bad, they're good. As long as your paperwork's in good shape, you'll get a grass-fed label. Tune in to this week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's meat plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly, a special edition from the Smart Kitchen Summit um, in Seattle. Each week, I interview someone who has made a big difference in the world of food. And today, I am extremely excited to introduce someone who not only is having an impact in the world of food, but an impact on hunger around America. I'm delighted to introduce all of you to Jasmine Crow. Jasmine, welcome to Speaking Broadly. Thank you so much for having me, Dana. So you have a company called Gooder, yeah. which I thought, um, I love that it's good and rescue. Yeah. <laughs> and you're doing Gooder for the world. And what you do is you have um, a software program that connects places that have too much food um, that needs to be picked up and then delivered to places that don't have food. Is that a, you, that's exactly what we do? A good enough way to describe it. So yeah. I look at it as a software logistics platform, if you will, that does the connecting, but also captures all the data and analytics of what it is that these restaurants are typically getting rid of. I think that's the thing that's really been missing in this space for years. 
we have had a lot of restaurants and a lot of businesses that have donated. But when it comes down to what it is that they're donating, what are the things that are common trends? Are they producing and overproducing the same item over and over again? They have no way of knowing that. And so that's really what our platform does. It quantifies all of that for them, but also gives them the best tax value for everything that they're donating because we have it item by item. That's fascinating. I didn't I didn't realize that the tax donation um, record was a part of the software that yes. makes it more enticing, yeah. right? And um, you, it's also a for-profit business as opposed to a not-for-profit yeah. business. So can you talk me through that a little bit? Yeah, you know, my background was in the social impact and nonprofit space for years. And one of the things I know about nonprofits is that you're constantly fundraising and you're always trying to worry about donations and you're often stretched with, you know, fewer staff members having to do more with less. And the reality is there have been a lot of nonprofits. There are a lot of organizations that exist with the purpose of addressing hunger, but we have a growing population of people that are experiencing hunger every day. And I believe that the reason why I wanted to be a for-profit is I think that there has to be really money and infrastructure put behind solving this problem. And I didn't want to always be worried about where my next donation was coming from, where my next dollar was coming from. I wanted to be able to pay people a fair minimum wage, a living wage, should I say, and then make sure that we actually operate so that every single day I'm operating, I didn't want to have to rely on volunteers to come and get the food and they may or may not be able to come or they switch, the ball gets dropped. We really wanted to focus on really big businesses who for they needed a guaranteed solution that was coming to them almost as I look at it as us being a waste management company and I would say if there was a nonprofit waste management company a lot of businesses probably would think it would be great it would be free it would save them a lot of money but if there was a day that that nonprofit didn't come and your trash can set there overflowing, then you're in a crisis mode, right? So you want to have a system. And that's what Gooder is. We are a system of managing food waste. So um, I know it's it's funny because in a way, uh, to me, anyway, solving food waste is a very sexy thing. Yeah. Um, but the underlying technology, you know, maybe not so sexy because it has to be so reliable. Yeah, you know, it has. It's the funniest thing, Dana, because when I first started Gooder, I really was focused on hunger and this video went viral of my work and people on Facebook were like, this is so amazing, which restaurants donate the food? And the reality was none. And so I started researching, like, what do restaurants do with their leftover food? And that's when I started becoming kind of an expert, if you will, on food waste. And I'm blown away on how much food is going to waste. I can't believe it. And then it's like I start gooder. And then literally, like, the next week I'm seeing billboards from Save the Food. I'm seeing, like, PSAs. And now all of a sudden, like, food waste was being talked about. And before, when I was in this space of just trying to feed people that were hungry, no one was talking about it. So it came around literally at the right time for me. And so it did get sexy. Um, I want to talk about um, your your background and your past because I'm always fascinated by the path to where you are um, or where um, all of my guests have come from and where they're heading. And um, I'm fascinated by many parts of your story, but one of them is that you started Sunday Soul 
Um, and you started it in Atlanta mm-hmm. in about 2013. Yeah. And um, you, when you did that, I have this vision of you. You were clipping coupons and you were figuring out uh, affordable, sort of quote unquote, affordable ways to feed 100 and then all the way up to 400 people on your own dime. In so my that own kitchen. In your own yeah. kitchen. I mean, yeah. Oh my goodness. So I need to know, like, yeah. <laughs> how did you decide to feed a hundred people? And then what are your cooking chops? Like, how did you even know how to cook for a hundred people? Well, I learned to cook when I was in college. Um, my parents had moved to Hillsborough, Oregon, uh, right outside of Portland. And I was actually still in college in North Carolina. So that very first Thanksgiving, me and my friend, we just couldn't go home. Like we couldn't afford to go home. And I was working. I always was a waitress or a bar tender all throughout undergrad and graduate school and I also worked in retail and so you know when you're working in the retail space like you have to work Black Friday so it didn't make sense for me to go home that Thanksgiving and me and one of my good friends still to this day we were like oh we're going to make Thanksgiving dinner we invited all the other college students that didn't get to go home and we literally were like looking at cookbooks googling recipes and just like taught ourselves to cook one Thanksgiving like that's how come I on cook. yeah that's how I learned <laughs> to cook like literally freshman year in college so like 2001 I'm learning to cook on campus um so it's a funny story there and then driving through downtown Atlanta you know when I first moved to Atlanta I've been in Atlanta since 2013 and I was driving through downtown and I saw hundreds of people you know sitting outside and I realized that they were homeless and I was blown away because I'd seen homeless people living in Phoenix and living in North Carolina, but I had never seen so many in one location. And I mean hundreds, like maybe three or four hundred. And I thought, like, I really want to do something for them. And what could I do is, you know, maybe go back and cook. Like, that's something I felt like I could do and serve a hundred people. Like, maybe I wouldn't have a hundred blankets or, you know, a hundred socks. It seemed easier. It seemed easier to me at the time, but it was harder. But it was your own investment of your, like, your time and your money and the cooking and the prepping. And did you cook it all yourself? And how did did you pick those recipes? And how did you scale it up? It was um, the first menu I ever did was spaghetti because it was just, you know, cost effective. It was like, what can I make that will, you know, be affordable and I can make a couple pans. So the first menu I did was spaghetti. And I remember thinking like, oh, I can whip it up in, you know, an hour and a half, two hours. And like my kitchen was so dirty that first day because I tried to make spaghetti in like two hours. Now, technically in my household, anyone can make spaghetti in like 30 minutes. You're making (laughs) it for like 100 something people and you're making garlic bread and corn and salad. It was just a lot. So like that two hour time frame, I knew (laughs) would never work. Um, But that's the where did you where do you serve them? Right on the streets. I started so you just right on the streets. Yeah. And you and brought wanted, food to the people. I brought food. I brought music. I brought trash cans. I had aprons. I really wanted it to be like, you know, a restaurant experience. And then I grew it and scaled it to like restaurants where I started actually running tables and chairs and linens and creating menus. And I would literally just make a lot of my favorite things. I would buy whatever was on sale at the grocery store that week. And, you know, the grocery store circular is always changing. So sometimes it would be, you know, shrimp. Sometimes I would have 
stakes up. I mean, it literally just depended what was on sale, what I could garner in donations. I would work with a couple of food banks to see if they would donate food to me. I had one that donated for a while and then they were like, they got really afraid because they thought, you know, they would get in trouble for feeding on the streets. And so they stopped giving food to me. And then I just said, hey, I'm still going to do it. And I could budget for about three to four hundred dollars and feed like up to 500 people. That's, so it was very impressive. That alone is quite a skill. Yeah, it was a skill. So now you were working um, when you were doing this? Yeah, I've always been working. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think is an impediment for so many people, like, everybody walks past those people. Yeah. I mean, American cities are filled. Maybe the street isn't quite as full as they yeah. you saw that day, or maybe it doesn't tug your heartstring quite as much, but we all have this feeling inside of ourselves. I wish I could do more. Yeah. What was it that was inside you that you saw that and you're like, hey, sure, I can make spaghetti in two hours and feed 100 people and just take it to the street. Like, where did that come from? You know, I get that question all the time. And it's such a weird, I think some things people just have. It's just in them. You know, nothing specifically happened. I wasn't homeless. I've never experienced homelessness before. But I have always been someone who has cared deeply about other people and the plight of other people. And uh, even since I was like in fourth grade, I used to spend my recesses working in the special needs program and working with those kids. So I felt like I've always just cared about people, um, but I've always believed people should eat. And I knew that food would bring people to the table. I mean, in a sense, when I was running for class president in college, I remember having like pizza and everyone came to my meeting, you know, because it was not because they wanted to hear from Jasmine. I'm sure there were some people <laughs> that wanted to hear from me, but more so it was like, oh, she's going to have pizza there. And that's kind of what gets people to the table. I think you also had said that your father um, was really an influence. Because my dad was a big, and still is, just a big giver. Um, what did he do with his? I mean, I know that he worked with the Boys and Girls Club, uh, brother, Big Brothers, Big, big Brothers, sorry, of America. Yeah. yeah. So he was a big brother. Uh, so worked with a lot of young men whose fathers weren't in their lives. My mom also sat on countless nonprofit boards growing up. Uh, but he says that he took me one time while visiting Washington D.C. on a family kind of trip. He said he took me and showed me like hundreds of homeless people when I was like six or seven. And he said like the entire plane ride back, all I kept talking about was like. Like, why don't those people have a place to live? Why don't they have food? Like, he said, I just talked and talked and talked about it. So he thinks that that was like that initial spark. But it was weird because it would be, you know, nearly 20 years later when I would actually start working with the homeless community from that time. All of that said, you did study um, social impact. Yeah. Right. I've done a ton in the social impact space, um, nonprofit management, communications was what my undergraduate was in, my undergraduate degree was in. But I think, you know, I just have always wanted to be a catalyst for change. And so I started helping celebrities define their giving, and, you know, start I'm, their nonprofits. I'm curious about that because you started something called Black Celebrity Giving. Yeah. That's great. Right. And what interests me about that is, uh, did you do that because you felt that it was um, an unrecognized community or that you want to encourage that community to do more? And, and yeah. I would say it was a mixture of both. I felt as though that there were so many preconceived notions as related to black celebrities at the time that we were, you know, just going to the clubs and spending 
an absorbent amount of money on jewelry and cars and clothes, but there were actually people who were really like, you know, Magic Johnson, Pharrell Williams, they were out there and they were, they had these amazing programs that for whatever reason I would know about, but the masses didn't know about. And so at first I wanted it to be just a blog and I would blog about the good things that they were doing. So I started as a blog and then I started wanting to do my own thing. Like, hey, I want to collect shoes for homeless people. I want to collect beauty supplies for domestic violence shelters. And I started just doing my own cause campaigns and realized that with some celebrities, and this is across the spectrum, you know, color is no difference here. Uh, the giving was very seasonal, like, you know, around Christmas and Thanksgiving, back to school, everyone's giving back. And I would notice there would be, you know, months where nothing, I didn't have news. I didn't have a lot of stories to pull from. And I decided I needed to start doing my own thing. And out of that came Sunday Soul. That's fascinating. And um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Jasmine Crow about feeding the hungry and a mission-driven life. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. They've been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories the cookware creates and the style it expresses. My name is Kat Johnson. I'm the communications director at Heritage Radio Network. When I'm not making food radio, I'm making food, and my favorite cookware is the eight-quart marine blue Dutch oven that never leaves my stovetop. Before we got our Le Creuset, the cookware we used most often was an antique Griswold cast iron pan. It didn't take long for me to realize how much I'd been missing enamel cast iron in my life. Le Creuset has a superior heat retention of cast iron, but paired with the unparalleled performance and ease of enamel. That means delicious food with easy cleanup. Head to lecreuset.com slash HRN, that's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com slash HRN to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. HRN listeners will get 20% off the new Le Creuset cookbook with the code HRN. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. We're talking today to Jasmine Crow. So another part of the the story of your journey is recognizing where hunger is in, when it's unexpected. Um, so a, a college friend who had a sort of glamorous career, it yeah. seemed, working with celebrities like Alicia Keys. A lot of people. I mean, it was so amazing. Uh, her journey at one point was just... I was living in Phoenix, Arizona. She's living in New York City. And, you know, she was just like living the life. She was traveling. She was touring all over the country. And she got married. And her husband got a job in Atlanta. And she believed that she could kind of reinvent her career there as well. It's like, you know, Atlanta's having all these films and TV sets, and there's a lot of celebrities there. She has a, a massive world of experience. She's worked with everyone from Alicia Keys to Paula Abdul, worked on Good Morning America. So surely she would get to Atlanta and be able to pick right back up. And when they got there, it just didn't happen. Like, it just was like work was really slow. She was really trying to get in. And then they were living off of one income. She was pregnant and her she had a young son at the time who was like two or three. And I just remember going over to their house one time and she just 
broke down telling me like they didn't have any food like she's offering me water and she's telling me like I know you know you're noticing I don't have any food over here I try and keep you know juice and snacks for my son and it's just so hard and you know she was pregnant at the time too so I know that her tears could have came from that as well you know the hormones but there was a lot of depth in what she was saying that I'm trying and you know I'm trying you know you you see me working like we're not out here just begging or you know we're not not putting the work in we're not not going to work every day we're not not looking for work every day we literally have to pay for our bills and that's the plight that's faced by millions of Americans that are working and essentially they have to make that crucial decision and it's like hey do I pay for my rent this month or do I pay for food and the reality is they think you know I'd much rather have a roof over my head and so food is always the first to go and that's how it was for them. Her focus was like, let me just have some snacks and some juice or whatever I can for my son. But sometimes for me and my husband, it's got to go. And I remember that day taking her to my house and like literally just giving her so much stuff out of my freezer and out of my kitchen. Like, here, get this in your house. You need groceries. Like, let me take you to the grocery store. And I didn't have much at the time, but it still was like I could do what I could for you. And um, I have to ask because I that that story is sort of in amber in a way yeah. in your trajectory yeah. because it was such a turning point for you. Yeah. But how is she doing today? Oh, great. She's doing great. She's working on um, a big TV show and, you know, that just makes me so happy, yeah. right? She's like, like they're about to buy the, their first house. So yeah. It's I mean, a thing very important for people to realize, right? That it, uh, hunger can be this a moment and it can be a lifetime and exactly. it just one and wants to help it and, can affect and everybody you know I think that was the big thing for me is at the time when I noticed that she had no food I was feeding the homeless every two weeks so here I was every two weeks I'm going out I'm feeding members of our homeless community and I'm in my mind really addressing hunger and then I have this college educated married friend that has led a successful career that didn't have food in her house and it, it shifted that perspective for me and it was like hey this is a lot bigger than just feeding members of our homeless community you have friends and probably family members even more so that I didn't know I only knew about her moment because I just happened to catch her at her house with no food and see her break down through it. But the reality was how many months did she have no food that I didn't know about? It really I, wasn't until that day. I wonder if it like gave you a different sort of impression about the work that you had been doing because you had thought yeah. you'd been really sort of solution oriented. Yeah, it changed my whole life. Like I, It changed my whole trajectory of how I was going to address this. And, you know, one of the biggest things that keeps me up at night with Gooder is trying to figure out you know, who do I lobby? How do I get rules changed to where I can actually get food into people's houses? Because I want to help people not always have to feel that level of, of pride that they have to, they have when they go to, like, food pantries. and Or the, or the wounded pride. Right. Yeah. In other words, like, right. That's yeah. a, such a brilliant. That is something That's I haven't heard of. Yeah. The notion of um, sort of meals on demand for the homeless. Like, there yeah. has to be a, distrib a distribution like yeah. I get system. so many emails. Huh. I mean, Gooder gets tons of messages on a weekly basis across social media. And a lot of them are like, hey, how can I get food for my family? Um, you know, it's myself, my husband. He's a, a veteran. He's getting disability. We have, you know, our, our food stamp benefits have been cut. Single mothers, um, that are just like, hey, I don't have any food in the house. I don't get paid until next week. So, 
and we're right now we're directing them to other organizations. Right. But I just think I would like to get those people food. And I think that there is a way to do that. And that's what I'm focusing on now. Just as Uber Eats and DoorDash and all these places are getting food right to people, we want to be able to do the same thing. And we're working on that right now. That that sounds like a, I mean, a brilliant task. It's going to be a hurdle. And it's hard, but I think it's worth it. I think that if people are going to ask for food and we need to get it to them, because a lot of times people can't even get to the places. I remember telling a lady like, oh, there's a food bank and it's, you know, three miles from you. And she's like, I don't have a car. I've got a baby. I've got, you know, like, so it's just kind of like, how do we get her there? And then even if she gets there, how much can she realistically carry back on that bus with a child? You know, so we don't think about those things. And I think that is the difference with Gooder and probably so many other organizations that are there is that we really have done our customer discovery on people that were hungry. And so not so much like the business. And we focus on how we could get businesses to donate the food and who we should go after, who's more apt to this, what cities and states care more about the sustainability piece and the hunger piece and even homelessness like Seattle does so much for their homelessness here. Um, But really trying to figure out the people that are struggling with hunger, why is that? And how can we change that cycle that they're going through? How can we break that? And that's where we've learned. That's where I've learned the most. Right. I mean, I've got to say, so the the, um, the hunger problem is the result of so many other um, related okay. problems. So you can feed people, but in the same way that you know you had that moment of discovery where you have a friend and you don't. It's an unrecognized face of hunger. Um, the solutions to hunger, I think, are so much more exactly. um, nuanced yeah. because. What you really want to solve is, you know, workforce development or, you know, opportunities exactly. or um, so it becomes very, very big. Yeah. But you don't like the learning. I mean, you know, there's so many kids that are going to school hungry and, you know, you can't teach a child through hunger. And so when I think about, again, trying to get food into households, I have a million reasons to do that. And that saving a family 60 to 80 dollars a month or whatever just on meals that they don't have to go out and buy or cook that can be the difference of them being able to pay their rent on time being able to pay a bill on time just having better credit so that they could get further i mean there's just hunger is a ripple effect to so many things and i think what bothers me most about some of the comments and things that i get a lot are like you know we shouldn't be responsible for paying for poor people. You know, they just need to work. They need to do. And there's just, there's such a big disconnect on on what it is that people are really going through. Like, you know, we, we service 1,500 plus seniors a week who work their entire lives, you know, and they're just getting pensions and subsidized income and paying a subsidized rent. And therefore their food stamps and other benefits are lowered and they have prescription bills. And so they're trying to figure out, hey, do I take my medicine or do I pay for food? And so to hear people message us and say things like, oh, we shouldn't have to be responsible for people that are poor. It's, it's you know, we have a lot of educating people on hunger that still has to be done after, what, 50-plus years that food banks have been around now. Right. I mean, a lot of people would argue that food banks are um, a very poor solution. Uh, I think I would argue that, too. And I think, you know, when I first started Gooder, I went to the Atlanta Community Food Bank and really was trying to work with them and seeing, like, how we could partner. And it just it never went anywhere. And I was thinking, like, wow, why aren't they jumping all over this? Like, why aren't they wanting to partner with me to help feed more people, you know? 
because I ultimately have the goal to work myself out of business. I think where there are a lot of businesses that are living off of donations and, you know, maybe that's not their goal at the end of the day. Because if you're you're making a ton of money or you're getting in, you know, you host these huge gallons, you make this you make all this money and you look at and I get it. There's administration costs. There's people that are, you know, you have to pay. Um, but we really want to say, can we be can we one day not have to do gooder because so many people are fed? So um, what are the character traits that you think it takes for you to be good at what you do? Yeah. I think you have to have compassion. You know, you have to have compassion for for the problem that you're solving and the people that you're helping. And I think, you know, there are a lot of people that are, we have competitors. We have people in this space that are doing similar things. But I think that there are few and far in between that have the level of commitment that I have, have worked with people on the means that I have on the ground. And really have went to bed hungry themselves, which myself, when I was building Gooder, I tell this story all the time. I had just went through a terrible breakup and had pretty much walked away with everything. And there were days when I would still be figuring out how to do Sunday Soul. And I would get home like, why didn't you pack food for yourself? You know, like thinking of what I was going to eat, even though I was still building Gooder at the time. This is in, you know, late 2016, probably two years ago, when I was literally trying to put pen to paper on what this would look like. I had a lot of days where I wondered what I would eat myself. And I think having had these experiences that I've had, I'm going to be more connected at the root of the problem. And I also think that a lot of people that are marginalized feel very comfortable talking to me mm-hmm. because they see that I've been doing this work before any of good or existed, before anything, before there was ever a news story on us, before anything, people knew that Jasmine would be rain, sleet, or snow, even days when I would... There was like three days when I just had two or three volunteers, when it was like freezing cold in downtown Atlanta, and I still went out there and fed. And I'd have tons of volunteers like message me and say like, oh, you know, it's it's raining. Are you going to cancel it? It's cold. Are you going to cancel it? And I would say like, are you guys still going to eat today? And no, I'm not canceling, and I'm going out there. And that is one of the reasons why I knew right away I did not want Gooder to be a nonprofit because I saw days where volunteers, when that rain was out, when it was cold outside, they did not want to come out. And I knew that there were always going to be mouths to feed, and the weather never changed someone eating. And what is it? So you said you put pen to paper to map out what this would be. Yeah. What? Um, experience or knowledge do you think you need to have to build you've built you've built a tech platform and a social good tech platform for profit what do you think you need in order to do that it was a lot you know I did not have a technical background and I think that you need someone who either if they're a mentor if they're a friend I mean whatever it is you need somebody who is kind of on your team in that regard that's helping you understand the trajectory and the product roadmap, if you will, the technology. So I ended up kind of getting into this space before I met people in this space. And so for like the first six months, I had no idea what I was doing. People were giving me crazy quotes on the technology. People were like, oh, that's never going to work. That makes no sense. And so if I could do it again, I would have definitely tried to meet people on technology more so not like, hey, this is what I want to build, but how do you build this? What does this take? Like, what does it take to build an app? And I was literally 
almost looking up like building an app for dummies, if you will, like just literally taking a pen and a paper and drawing, drawing out like wireframes of this is what I think the first order screen looks like. And this is what this looks like and kind of trying to map it all out. Um, I also think you just need a plan. You know, one of my favorite sayings is plan your work, then work your plan. And so figuring out like, what does the path look like at three months? What do you need to accomplish these next three months, six months, nine months? So that's really important. And then get involved and take advantage of all the resources that are available to you, whether you're working with like your local SBA or there's hackathons, there's, you know, entrepreneurship programs. I really got involved with everything that I could to really make this happen in the beginning. And then do you ever hit a point where you say, you know what, this is overwhelming. I'm dedicating my life to other people. I don't have enough time for myself. I mean, self-care is a big problem for me. Um, I don't think that it's overwhelming for me. I think that I feel, I do feel like an immense amount of pressure sometimes Mm -hmm. to deliver, Mm -hmm. Uh, not only to like the community, to investors, to people that I'm serving. Mm -hmm. So I do feel stretched in a lot of ways oftentimes, but a lot of times I feel really good about what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And I do just have to remember like to take care of myself. You know, that whole, you can't pour from an empty cup. A lot of times that's something that I'm like, I've got to do better. I've got to do better with making sure that Jasmine's okay too. And, and what do you what it. do you do to take care of yourself? I'm doing <laughs> what do I need to do? I mean, I try and put my laptop down by 1130 every night. Mm-hmm. Some nights I make it. Some nights I don't. But I do try and have a conscious like you're going to put your laptop down at this time. I have a few meditations that I do. Um, I've downloaded the Calm app. So trying to just do things like that, working out. And then I take days off. Like, you know, there are days that it's just like, today I'm not working. Today I'm not doing anything. I'm literally, because I'm not a Monday through Friday kind of worker, right? I'm working Mm -hmm. every single day. But there are days that it's just kind of like, hey, Sunday I'm not going to do anything. Saturday I'm going to spend time with my sister or my friend or Mm -hmm. I'm going to go have some wine. I, I went to Napa for the first time, like on a solo vacation by myself. Like I was in San Francisco meeting with investors and I had to be back in San Francisco that next Monday and I just stayed the weekend and said hey I'm just gonna go and enjoy Napa and I enjoyed that and uh, that's it's always it's good to take a break right because yeah. it frees your brain up yeah, to do even <laughs> to do even more um this was a great feeling more later day. and so if you could draw like your vision of the future um for good or like what would that be like what's the biggest problem you think that you could solve realistically with the platform you have I think we can solve the the supply chain problem right I think that there's a surplus food supply chain problem we are continuing I'm actually doing a lot of research to see how much food food banks are wasting because I believe that there's times when they're not getting that food out and it's going to waste they get so much Mm -hmm. and I've worked with some local food banks who've told me like yeah you know, we're closed Saturday and Sunday. So wow, Monday through Friday, that. like, yeah, I mean, there's, it's a logistics issue, right? So, and what happens is these grocery stores or whoever, the food manufacturers, especially with the, the perishable food, you know, your cans and all that stuff, which I think is terrible. I'm really not focused on getting that kind of food to the community. Anyhow, I really focus on prepared meals, but those perishable meals, you know, the restaurant or that grocery store, once it's out there building, they feel as though they've done something. Mm-hmm. 
why I'm using blockchain and our technology is to actually show them what they've done and even be accountable to myself on if we're dropping the ball to actually show like, hey, your food went from here mm-hmm. to gooder and then it went to this nonprofit, mm-hmm. this home, this organization. I think that's the biggest problem that I could solve now because I believe over in my lifetime, I've donated thousands of dollars of food in grocery stores. I'm always the one, you know, mm-hmm. they're like, do you want to donate to Food for America, Feeding the Hungry Children? I mean, whatever it is. And I'm always, you know, writing my name on the hand and mm-hmm. doing all that. And I never <laughs> know where that food goes. I have to just believe in my mind that this food is going to make it to people in need. And the reality is it can never leave the grocery store. And there's no way of me to know that, like other than just me believing that, you know, whatever, XYZ, Kroger, Publix, Harris, Teeter, Ralph's, whoever it is, that they actually put that food Mm -hmm. in the hands of somebody in need. I never know that. And now I want to really be able to show that to people where this food is going. And if you want to inspire, um, if you want to inspire people to do more, Mm -hmm. What is it that you tell them? Like, what is it that you say to someone who is sort of on the fence or they put, you know, the dollar in the cup, but you feel like they have more potential to, yeah. to do more to solve? I mean, what do you say? Have more potential. You know, like I literally took one hundred and fifty dollars and went and fed one hundred and twenty people on October 13th, 2013, you know, and I think that if I could do that and I was not, you know, making six figures I was not, you know, I was on a one income household, just didn't have a lot, but I still had a lot to give. And I think that's the thing that I always encourage people to understand is that there is you have so much to offer and someone needs what you have. And even if it's, you can't give of money, you can give of time, you can give, you know, you can make sandwiches, you can do something. There's always something that can be done. And, you know, we the, the whole impetus behind Gooder is to do Gooder. Like, we're, I'm a do-gooder. Everyone that works for Gooder is a do-gooder. And that's the whole idea. Well, you could write a do-gooder, do and we can all do better. Um, so I, my closing question on the show is always... Um, is there a, a woman in the food industry, because you don't really come from the food industry, but you're feeding yeah. people, um, who's been a tremendous inspiration for you? I can't say in the food industry particularly, no. Um, I've done some stuff. You know, I'm looking at how, like, Martha Stewart and even Oprah are expanding their brands in the food industry, and I'm pretty inspired by that with, with what Oprah's doing with Oh, That's Good and Martha Stewart stepping into the meal prep scene. And I do look at, like, other ways that we could do things as well, like, um, and I'm hoping to just meet more people in this space. You know, I'm still very new, less than two years in, in the food space. So I'm hoping to meet more people. But I can tell you that I'm just really inspired by, like, everyday people that I meet that are just like, I love what you're doing. I work at a restaurant. I work at Chuck E. Cheese. or throwing away food. Like, it does. they don't have to be, like, a big person. I'm inspired by everybody. I get inspiration from the janitor. So I can't say that there's like a big name person that's really inspired me right now, but I've met hundreds of people along the way, just waitresses that are like, yeah, I read about what you're doing and I tried talking to my manager about it and they're saying, you know, we could get sued or we could do this. And I'm like, that's not true. And, you know, they're like, I got so angry. And those are the people that inspire me, the ones that are just everyday workers that probably at some point have needed food themselves that are trying to help me on my plight and they don't even know me. Um, 
Well, thank you so much for joining me on Speaking Broadly, Jasmine Crow. It's been fantastic to have you. And, you know, let's go forth and solve the hunger crisis. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) So if if we want to find um, Gooder on social channels, where would we find it? We are Gooder Co. on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And we're The Gooder Co. on Twitter. Great. And you guys know where to find me. I'm at FW Scout on Instagram and Twitter. Love your questions. Love your comments. And I'll be back next week. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.